0: Welcome back to American Scene, I'm Ben Rosen, here to talk about a few more movies with American in the title and what they have to say about American culture, identity, and values. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, give us a follow on Instagram, at AmericanScenePod. I am still working my way through nine movies with American in the title that have come out since 2020. Last time I talked about the convoluted machinations of government programs in American Carnage, the corruption of local leaders in American Siege, and the aspirations and entitlement of an American underdog. In a couple of those, especially in Siege, it was tough to dig deeper to see what they were really trying to say, but I don't think I will have that problem today, because I'm talking about three movies with attention-grabbing titles that I thought actually provided pretty rich texts, even if two of the films aren't all that watchable. Let's not make you wait too much longer, Let's jump into the first movie on today's episode. How much money have I made for you? 210 million. Are you gonna send me twice a cocaine? I'm surprised. It's a whole new game these days. It looks like the same game to me. I really respect what you did back in the day. It's time the world knows who I am. This isn't gonna end up well. American Sicario is a 2021 film directed by RJ Collins written by Richard Ronat, starring Philippe A. Haddad, Maurice Comte, Maya Stojan, Jalen Moore, Johnny Ray Diaz, and Danny Trejo in perhaps his most thankless role. Uh, In this film, American gangster Eric Vasquez is scheming to become the top dog in the Mexican underworld, only to find himself making enemies out of both powerful cartels and his own allies. We open on Vasquez executing a couple folks who are in bed with a rival cartel, he sends the tape to the news to make himself known as a new player on the scene. He has what he thinks is a unique opportunity to move drugs across the border, but he, this, he, he concocts this scheme with um, one of the two uh, cartel leaders that he's working with unbeknownst to the other one. And we see that the person who uh, uh, suspected he was going behind his back uh, sells him out. And uh, his product is seized, and, and now he's in trouble with, with that cartel he was trying to work with. Uh, in an effort to work with the DEA to take them down and save himself, he ends up betraying those closest to him, even putting his pregnant wife in danger along the way, until she ends up leaving with her father, played by uh, Trejo. Uh, the DEA ends up betraying him as well. Uh, he got no proof that a real immunity deal was actually in place, and Vasquez ends up dead in a Mexican prison. Uh, The most important thing to stress uh, in this movie, uh, in this story, of course, is that Vasquez is actually from Texas. Uh, Admittedly a smart kid from a good home uh, who saw an opportunity to get into the drug game because he says he's different and that he can bring profit in a smart way, uh, apparently by using the government, media, and police pressure to put his competition in their crosshairs. Uh, But he's not smart, uh, and he's only different in ways that end up being his undoing um first he falls into a lot of the stereotypes of a drug kingpin he's throwing party with his boys and sexy dancers in the back of a club he's lazing about in a hot tub he's playing video games um his loyal followers seem to genuinely like him uh which is cool to see but he still orders them around uh like he tells one of them uh you're gonna get a dance from this girl um uh you know even though you don't want to and, uh, and he's like, he's like, I'm going to kill you if you don't get a dance from this girl, which is just wild. Uh, and uh, then the next morning he comes home and he's like, hey, uh, make breakfast for me and my wife uh, to some other character. Um, <laughs> uh, he says he values loyalty and chosen family. He's saved some of his henchmen from being orphans or otherwise cast aside. But he doesn't treat them uh, uniquely well or with more trust or empathy, uh, he poses a terrifying loyalty test to them, and as we see later, he throws one of them under the bus when the heat is on. So he didn't really save these people out of the goodness of his heart, he chose them because they'd be indebted to him, and because they'd be more easily manipulated and and also more dispensable. So he doesn't seem to be any different than your typical drug lord in, in that respect. Uh, the big difference is that he actually has no idea what he's doing. Uh, This is an American guy who who came down thinking he knows this business better than people who have built entire cartels over probably decades and generations. Uh, He seems to think that even without any significant education or experience that he can be a player in this game. And his privilege makes him think that he's immune to the consequences that come with being in this business. He's so eager to get this big drug shipment through the border, you know, probably before he's, he's really ready. And he blows it. He thinks he can make a deal with the DEA. He blows that too. And then in the end, he he thinks he can go to war with a rival cartel uh, training like four guys uh, in what is probably the funniest montage I've ever seen uh, to go up against a legitimate, highly trained and powerfully equipped unit. Uh, And he obviously blows that too. So the movie seems to be saying something that actually surprised me, uh, that to be An American Sicario means you're foolish, disloyal, petulant, and and unprepared for what it really takes to be a cartel leader. Uh, At the same time, it's not excusing the behavior of more, for lack of a better word, uh, effective cartel leaders. The primary villain is a psychopath who uses humans as target practice on the gun range and serves what he claims to be human flesh to his dinner guests. So... It's also saying that's the kind of person you have to be in order to be successful in the business. You have to be crazy, ruthless, unpredictable, and in the end, he doesn't make it out alive either. The Trejo's character is is supposed to be, I think, emblematic of the older generation— but even he says he doesn't see that things have changed much since his time. Um, at the end, he's telling Vasquez that he's playing the victim, even though Vasquez caused all this to happen. Uh, really, for the last few scenes that, that Vasquez shows up in, he's just kind of whining, telling his wife, you know, you should support me and I'm going through all this crazy stuff. And, but really, he's not really doing anything. He's just sitting on the couch and drinking and, and not taking any action to solve any of these problems uh, that he's caused for himself. Uh, The villain in A Phone Call calls him an American bitch, uh, and although I wouldn't use the term, you get what he means. Vasquez wasn't ready to play with the big dogs. Another difference, of course, is that he made the choice to work with a cartel rather than following some other kind of career path, which as a smart kid football star from a good Texas family, uh, he probably had options. Um, whereas, according to a story from the AP last year, drug cartels recruit children as young as 10 who came from unstable homes, who are out on the streets and maybe need more money because their families can't make ends meet, who, who leave or get kicked out of school. Uh, and they're recruited by other kids their own age with either drugs or religious beliefs or a sense of belonging kids can't get elsewhere. Um, combinations of poverty, abusive homes, and unresponsive schools and social agencies also play a role. Which is to say, participation in this world might seem like their only choice. So again, there's that sense of, of privilege uh, from Eric Vasquez and, and American exceptionalism. In prepping my notes for this episode, I realized this is actually based on a true story of Edgar Valdez Villarreal, uh, also known as La Barbie, who's serving a 49-year prison sentence in Florida. The movie stays true to a few details. Uh, Valdez was born in Laredo. He was a popular high school football player. He became a weed dealer while in high school and later joined a cartel where he was able to rise up quickly due to his U.S. connections. Uh, He also collaborated with the DEA and FBI while working as a drug trafficker and employed techniques such as videotape torture and decapitation. But whereas Vasquez in the movie says he made the choice to come to mexico and work with a cartel the true story is he he fled to mexico rather than face an indictment on charges of marijuana distribution and whereas the movie shows him rallying his four individual uh soldiers uh when he faces retribution for setting up a cartel leader for for capture by the dea the true story we don't see is the gang war he waged for control of the cartel after the cartel boss died We've seen similar true stories of privileged Americans who think they can enter a world uh, much bigger and more dangerous than they anticipated, whether it's the story of Kid Cannabis, uh, this was a Rolling Stone article adapted into a movie uh, about a decade ago, or the story of Victor Bout that inspired Lord of War, Um, he ended up in jail, uh, famously, Uh, there was some recent news about him you might be aware of, Uh, or Blow, uh, that character was arrested, or War Dogs, which... Even has the tagline of, quote-unquote, hustling their way to the American dream. Uh, of course, it doesn't have American in the title, so we won't cover it on on this show. But it, it has that in the tagline, which I just uh, found pretty interesting. Had to throw it in. Um, those individuals, of course, also arrested. Uh, or even American made, um, which in the end of that movie, he's killed. Uh, got in over his head and and ended up running afoul of, of cartels and, and died. Uh, was murdered. So, in this movie, it's, it's a surprisingly suspect view of the American male in a movie that has a, a lot of conventional gangster film elements. Uh, it's not a good movie, uh, it's pretty boring and poorly acted and filmed, but it does come down on what being American means in this particular uh, context. There are no real uh, interesting American moments worth pointing out, so we'll set aside American Sicario for now and move on to our next film. We have no food. They took everything. We need your help. Can't help you. Can't or you won't. Go somewhere else. There is nowhere else. I know you're scared. So are we. Dear Lord, please bless this food we are about to receive. Amen. 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 Why didn't he say amen? American Refugee is a 2021 film directed by Allie Leroy, written by Allison and Nicholas Buckmelter, starring Erica Alexander, Derek Luke, Sam Trammell, Zamani Wilder, Jesse Case, Vincent Mattis, and Peyton Jackson. Uh, it follows a family seeking shelter in their neighbor's bunker when the American economy is in collapse and the danger inside is greater than outside. Uh, It opens on a sequence giving us the info of this looming financial crash, borders closing, National Guard at the ready, fear for the next Great Depression. Uh, Then it tells us in voiceover that chickens have a pecking order that's established early. The weaker chickens have to wait their turn, and the order is hard to disrupt unless something unexpected happens. Uh, We meet Greg and Helen Taylor. They're a well-educated, well-off family with two kids and one on the way. Helen is a doctor on maternity leave. Um, she's about to have a baby. Uh, Derek is a professor teaching classes over some futuristic version of Zoom. We don't actually get to see him teach a class, but he, we see him open up his, his sort of um, like digital display. Uh, they recently moved 30 minutes outside the city to a relatively small home on a big spacious plot of land in the country, uh, seemingly in the middle of nowhere with the only neighbor for miles around uh, belonging to Tremel's character Winter. His son Maddie and his partner Amber, who is also pregnant, but the Taylors have never actually glimpsed this family until Helen runs into Amber at the understocked and pharmacistless general store. Uh, Helen shows her to some things that she'll need, and later, when Helen, uh, sorry, when in, when Amber is in need of assistance that Winter can't figure out, Winter sends Maddie to the Taylor's house to bring Helen. ...into their underground bunker. They're, they've been hiding out there ever since Winter started to feel like the, the shit was going to hit the fan. And the shit really is starting to hit the fan. The city is devolving into the kind of scenes we saw in Last Days of American Crime. Uh, just absolute mayhem, uh, which we see when, when Greg tries to rescue Helen's sister, Brooke, from her apartment... Uh, ...and she's killed, trying to escape a group of thieves. Uh, Helen helps uh, Amber, and then Winter kicks them out again. But when the Taylors' home is invaded later that night, they escape and run back to Winter's compound seeking refuge now that all the craziness in the city has, has reached them in the country. Finally, here is when we get into the meat of the movie uh, that actually has something to say. Winter doesn't want to let these people in. There's, there's only a certain amount of food and space to sustain them, but finally, he relents. But he says you can't just take. Everyone has to bring something to the table. You're either an asset or a liability. In this situation, Greg's education and skills don't serve him, and he has to learn new skills like casting bullets and shooting so that when another crew descend on their compound, he and Winter can fight them off. He proves himself useful in that scenario, but it's a high-risk job that he's not trained for. Helen can leverage her skills and knowledge as a doctor to see Amber through the pregnancy, but Helen is only useful because of what she can provide not because she's a person and therefore deserving of health and safety and protection from forces that are outside of their control. And so once the child is born, it was no surprise that Winter says, okay, you're not useful to us anymore. It's time for you to go. Helen even tells Greg they have to prove their value. So she devises a way that she has to take Amber's place, breastfeeding the new child. Meanwhile, Amber is upset and she won't uh, there's there's a quote, says she says specifically, she won't let Helen replace her. Once we got here, the movie's commentary really clicked in for me. This is an extended metaphor for how refugees are treated in America. In many places in the US, especially in the country, especially by uh, the kind of right-wing Christian characters like Winter, there is immediate pushback to receiving refugees. We hear their arguments. There's no room for them. We already have enough mouths to feed. They have nothing to contribute. Let the cities take them, but we don't want them here. We won't let them replace us, even if the job they're doing is one we can't or won't do. But the metaphor goes deeper. Greg is educated, but in the world he's entering, he may not be able to find suitable work. This is just like highly skilled immigrants and refugees who who may have been professors or engineers in their home countries, but because of language barriers or a lack of U.S. work history or other factors, they can't find work that matches those skills. They have to take lower-wage jobs and sometimes higher-risk jobs to pay their bills. It's a a phenomenon uh, sometimes known as brain waste. Ultimately, it's only the men who are kicked out, Greg and his son Kai, because I suppose by implication the women are, are useful to procreate. Uh, When this group, uh, minus Greg and Kai, sit down for dinner that night The message gets a little muddled when when Helen mutters something about quote-unquote the new normal and Winter has this monologue about that there will be no new normal out there. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the point of that monologue is in the context of the rest of the story other than for Winter to argue that the world will always be corrupt and treat people as if they're disposable but he can create a better life for them down there where, where everyone is bringing something to the table where everyone's an asset and then we go even deeper into something Reminiscent of slavery, uh, that this, this white man has brought these black women into the house to be available to him. He makes a move on Helen, which she reluctantly seems to accept in, in order to get along and for him to continue providing shelter for them uh, and to not incur his wrath. In the end, Greg returns with his son for an epic showdown with Winter, smoking them out so they can turn the tables on him, and after Winter gets a face full of molten metal, Helen is the one who takes over. Uh, She takes over this entire community that they're going to build. Um, Winter kind of relents, it seems, uh, and and lets her lead. Greg can't lead. He was unserious in the face of a looming threat, and he was disloyal to Helen, both because he cheated on her in their recent past, and his in the story, he hides a gun uh, from Winter, thinking he'll use it against Winter later. Uh, That goes against her plan to prove their usefulness. It put their family in danger, this this action uh, of hiding the gun. Helen, on the other hand, has the skills to lead without prejudice, and in the end, the pecking order has been disrupted, and the last thing we see is both families living above ground not isolating themselves from the world in the way that anti-refugee Americans would prefer. And Helen, we see we see this in the last shot, Helen accepts new refugees who are arriving outside the compound's fence. We've moved beyond the metaphor of the refugee, but it's a nice ending that implies that this maternal knowledge that, that violence and hard-nosed opposition to each other is not going to solve anything. From the beginning, Helen's the one bringing these families together, and that's what we see in the end as well. I didn't really pick out any American moments uh, out of this movie, uh, but there is a scene during shooting practice when Greg and Winter quote Du Bois and Booker T. Washington back and forth to each other. It it felt a bit out of place, but it did show that Greg's intelligence doesn't put him any higher on the pecking order because Winter can go toe-to-toe in that regard as well. The story is effective, if fairly predictable, but it takes Way too much setup to get into the underground bunker, and the setup prompts just too many questions. Like, why does it take so long for highly educated folks like Helen and Greg to take the threat of financial collapse seriously? As a doctor, and a professor, it feels like it would be in keeping with their characters that they would follow the news, or be connected at least to people who do. Greg references COVID, so they're aware of how serious the fallout could be, but they don't investigate further. If the commentary here is that they are so well off that they think that they won't be affected by the collapse, that's not in the text. Greg never says, oh, we'll be fine. We wrote out the storm in COVID, you know, bought the dip and came, actually came out better on the other side. Uh, and whether that was the intention or not, it makes it hard to empathize with them. There are less consequential ways to suggest that Greg isn't a very responsible dad and has, uh, has a ways to grow. Um, And also the fallout of this financial collapse looks a lot like the kind of lawlessness of the opening sequence of World War Z or sequences from The Last of Us, but there's no suggestion of any other kind of crisis like, uh, you know, a a medical scare or some kind of rampant uh, virus or anything like that. So if the great, Recession of 2008 and the financial downturn during COVID didn't cause a kind of wild west civil war, violence in the streets, roving gangs, every person for themselves kind of hellscape. What makes this crisis so unique? It's not explained or addressed. Like, why are there people, like, roving the countryside looking for stuff they can steal in homes or at the ends? you know, looking for shelter? That's just, I don't know. I don't get it. I do appreciate the implication that folks in the suburbs or the country view problems in the city with a sense of remove, a sense of detachment, as if those problems are contained only to the city and it's their problem. I live in Portland and I've talked to Enough people outside the city who say, "Oh, oh, it's it's dangerous there. You know, crazy homeless people, drugs, crime." As if those aren't realities where they live as well, or that the roots of those problems—inequality, addiction, lack of opportunity, and support—are strictly contained to the city. Like that's a widespread problem. It, it doesn't know geographic boundaries. Uh, But Greg and Helen have ongoing connections to the city. Their kids go to school there. Brooke lives there. I assume that's where Helen's hospital is, where Greg's school is, even if he's teaching lessons over Zoom. So it's weird that they aren't really paying attention until things really go off the deep end. There is a lot in this setup that is just kind of confusing in this way. Uh, But I think what makes this all so difficult to accept is that by including that opening sequence about the looming collapse, the audience knows more than its protagonists when the movie starts. You just get rid of that sequence, and then we're discovering the news as the characters do, and it makes it somewhat easier to go along with the idea that that they didn't see it coming. But that's all I really have to say about American Refugee. Let's get into our final film for this episode. We have a serious problem. There's no way that this can get any worse. They're branding people now. Neck check! Need another minute? Am I sensing a little attitude, this? Someone will do something. You can't save everybody. I can try. Our last film to discuss on this episode is American Insurrection. It's a 2021 film directed by William Sullivan, written by Sullivan and Jarrett Kerr. Stars Nadine Malouf, Nick Westrate, Sarah Wharton, Jarrett Kerr. Brandon Perea, Michael Raymond James, and Toby Leonard Moore. It's set in a dystopian America where the government keeps track of all people who aren't straight, white, Christian, and cisgender. This system of government is kept in place by the volunteers, these Proud Boys esque followers of Toby Leonard Moore's character, the founder, who's seen in a couple flashbacks. And the film centers on four people hiding in a farmhouse belonging to a volunteer that they keep tied up in the barn while they wait on a radio signal to provide coordinates where they can safely cross into Canada. Sort of Last of Us meets Handmaid's Tale. It's been a few months since this all started, during which Sarah has helped others escape to Canada, and now these four are going to leave for good. On the way back to the farmhouse one day, though, Sarah discovers RJ, a young gay Filipino man, being attacked by volunteers, and she rescues him, and together they kill the two volunteers. This puts a target on their backs, and now Sarah is desperate to help RJ to get to Canada along with the others. As the story goes on, rifts emerge within the core group as Jarrett has to pretend to be the man they've held captive and join the volunteers on a hunting party, uh, going out looking for the folks who killed the two volunteers. David makes a move on RJ, revealing that he uh, that, that David is a closeted gay man. Sarah is contending with a worsening head injury and won't give up on waiting for the instructions from the radio. And Zabi does her best to connect on a human level with their captive, which draws the ire of others in the group, especially her husband David. The movie is slow and talky, but I actually enjoyed it quite a bit by focusing on the tensions within the group and less on how do we actually make it out of here, us versus them, kind of standard thriller territory. This is really more of a drama and a lot more unpredictable as the story unfolds. And the acting is by far the strongest within this batch of six movies across uh, this episode and the last one. Obviously, we're meant to know that the beliefs and the folks in power who brought us to this system of government are bad and destructive, and it tries to communicate what could be a constructive way to connect and form trust even under difficult circumstances. The most meaningful relationship is between Zabi and Gabe, as she tries to peel back the layers of his facade to reveal a real person. She starts by asking, you know, what pain were you going through what, that, that led you here? Which, like, yes, it turns out Gabe has been in physical and emotional pain, but not every white supremacist has experienced trauma. Not every Proud Boy or neo-Nazi or KKK member picked it up because their parents didn't hug them enough. Uh, but this first interaction quickly devolves into an argument. They're talking past each other. Zabi is making assumptions about Gabe, and Gabe lashes out. He retreats into familiar racist talking points. It's not productive. Their second interaction goes much more smoothly. They share a couple beers together, and he opens up. He tells her a story about what happened in his life, uh, that he served in the military. He struggled to readjust when he came home. The the VA didn't help him. Government didn't help him. His marriage got rocky. And it's funny that I happened to be listening to the audiobook for Dylan Maron's Conversations with People Who Hate Me when I watched this movie, and I finished it before I, I wrote up my notes, And there are a couple lessons in it that that actually relate pretty perfectly to this story. Actual conversation separates the person from the system, which is literally what happens in this story. Because Gabe is physically separated from the system, Zabi is able to connect with him as a person. Uh, A couple points that Marin makes in this story is that empathy is not interrogation. That's why Zabi's first attempt that we see in this story didn't work. She made it an interrogation. Marin also makes the point that, of course, empathy is a luxury. Outside of the farmhouse and the barn with Gabe, Zabi could never attempt to connect with someone like him because of the danger she'd be putting herself in. Her mosque was bombed and she was almost killed. She doesn't even feel comfortable uh, or safe wearing her hijab in public. But in the barn, the tables are turned. She has all the power so she can be vulnerable and show him who she really is. Together with other elements in the story, the film speaks to the idea that by reaching out, trying to connect on a human level, finding something to laugh about together, talking about your personal lives rather than arguing over big issues, you you can cut through some of the bullshit and actually become real people to each other. Isolating oneself, projecting your beliefs onto people who uh, you don't actually know anything about is harmful. This is what Jarrett does when Sarah brings RJ home, you know, we don't trust him, he's a risk, David doesn't want Zabi talking to Gabe, he's one of them, he'll sell us out, we can't trust him. The movie ends by flashing back to uh, the before times with David and Zabi on one of their first dates. Zabi reveals to him that she's Muslim, that she's been scared to show people who she really is, and David wants to see her in her hijab. So she puts it on and they hold hands and walk down to the pier. This, I think, is ultimately the movie's point, even if it's a bit trite considering the context of this dystopia that connecting with each other seeing and understanding who we really are being inclusive using empathy to build trust these are sources of strength and that comes to pass with who survives in the end in the climax david and Jarrett send rj away and plan to kill gabe after david kills gabe and turns the gun on himself uh, the volunteers descend on the farm Jarrett has to give his life to let the others get away And same with Sarah, who had been desperate for someone on the radio to give them what they need to escape. Had they been open and trusting of each other, and RJ and Gabe, perhaps they all could have escaped together more quickly. In the end, though, the only people who do escape are Zabi and RJ, the two characters who were willing to reach across lines to connect more deeply with someone. Ultimately, this is all too late to save the world or or put America back together in this movie, but it can serve as a sort of cautionary tale. Zabi, in the end, says she needs to believe there are still good people in the world because otherwise what's the point? And and Marin has a line in his book that reflects this, that when we see each other as human beings, not as opponents, targets, or punching bags, we are more inclined to embrace redemption over excommunication. I don't know that the title works on this level uh, because an insurrection is an uprising against an authority or government, something that that doesn't happen in this movie from either side. Uh, Zabi and her group don't rise up against the volunteers, and the volunteers and their leader, it doesn't seem uh, ever had to stage an uprising. We don't get the sense that they came into power by violent means. Uh, But it's worth a watch for sure. I'm not surprised that the audience score um, on IMDb uh, is so low. Anything with an overtly political title like this is going to have people, uh, going in with their defenses up, which is a problem for a film whose point is to reach beyond such loaded words as insurrection or even American, uh, because to the volunteers, anyone who isn't white, Christian, cis, isn't fully American, Right. I'm encouraged, though, that, that although top critics didn't really weigh in on this, reviews on Rotten Tomatoes give this 86% uh, compared to a uh, 37% audience score. Good reviews love the tension, the performances, the structure, and ultimately the message. Uh, Bad reviews on Amazon note that the film doesn't answer how we got here, Uh, and it doesn't explicitly, but it's right there in the message of the film that when you stop seeing others as people, and when you stop trying to connect with certain people, that's how you get here. I'm not gonna both sides this idea, because the film doesn't either, this is right-wing violence, but it is something many of us are guilty of, and it's something many of us are capable of changing. And now, finally, uh, definitely to lighten the mood after, after all of that, we can pick out some American moments from this movie. They're playing our song. There weren't a lot, but I liked seeing a red tricycle uh, here in the movie. That reminded me so much of American Flyers, which I just rewatched recently. Uh, what a great movie. <laughs> uh, the whole a uh, idea that's baked into the story here that that volunteers get to enjoy certain freedoms this isn't a particular moment uh but it is uh spoken of um that volunteers get to enjoy certain freedoms by their participation uh in in this system in the same way that military service gives you certain things that really should be guaranteed to everyone, whether it's healthcare or education. Um, There are a couple scenes of fishing that feel classically American, just two guys hanging out by the water. Uh, And then just the farmhouse and the barn, really picturesque, idyllic America. So I'm happy I got to end with a movie I actually enjoyed watching. That's definitely a change from the other five films I've talked about so far. And I look forward to coming back in a few weeks to discuss the last three of nine movies with American in the title that have come out since 2020. For now, that's a wrap on American Sicario, American Refugee, and American Insurrection. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave a positive review. You can give us your unfiltered opinion on Instagram at American Scene Pod, and we'll see you next time.